So how are you all doing today? Uh, I just want to say, your pastor suggested that I sit down. Why not? I looked into the mirror the other day and I said to my wife, Rebecca, I said, honey, I don't look 75, do I? She said, no, no, you don't, but you used to. <laughs> so why not take advantage of a chair? The Bible says that Jesus sat down and taught them. I think it says there that somewhere, Pastor Doug. You use it too. My, at your age. You know, I want to say this about this church. I had no idea that there were going to be this many people this morning. I, I'm sure that I probably didn't bring enough of these books, but that's beside the point. What a, what a wonderful time of energy, the young people. You know, I can now see God doesn't need us old people. He's got a whole crop of young people coming along. And look at all of these, well, not all of them are teenagers sitting in the front row, <laughs> but look at all of these teenagers sitting in the front row. I, if I were here... Uh, in Indy, I, I'm sure that I would become very good friends with your pastor because I'm serious. I could learn an awful lot from him, and uh, he doesn't like what I'm saying. He said he would leave <laughs> if I said anything with which he didn't agree. Lisa and Ben. I'm trying to care for you. You're trying to care for me. God bless you. Yes. Yes. Lisa and Ben enjoy this place. They've told us about it. They're involved in the ministry here, and it's great. I do bring you greetings from the city of Chicago. It's the city of righteousness, love, truth, and justice. <laughs> One day, not this winter, but the previous winter, it was so cold that on January the 19th, according to the media, if you can catch this, it was so cold <laughs> that... Uh, some of our politicians were actually seen with their hands in their own pockets. Uh, am I going too fast for some of you? One more story about Chicago, and then we'll get into the, uh, the uh, message for today. In Chicago, there was a couple that was out for their 40th wedding anniversary. Each was 60 years old. An angel appeared to them and said, what would you like for your anniversary? And uh, the wife said, I've never traveled. The angel flashed his sword and instantly in her hand were two tickets for a world cruise. It was the man's turn. The man took the angel aside and said, you know, I'd really like to be married to somebody who's 30 years younger than I am. The angel flashed his sword, and instantly the man was 90 years old. <laughs> when you ask God for something, be careful. Now, I'm going to give you one or two more lines. It's all free today. Many of you are very young. You won't appreciate this, but I notice a few people, two of whom sitting in the front row, <laughs> others. How many of you have ever heard Billy Graham preach? Could I see your hands, please? Pretty good number, about 74 of you. I'll, I'll just give an invitation like Billy, okay? Uh, this might sound like him. Now, for this, I should not be sitting down, but I'm sitting down, and I'll remain seated down. But hopefully uh, this might uh, 
sound a little bit like an invitation that Billy Graham might give. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to come, hundreds of you. You simply get up out of your seats and I want you to come. And for those of you who have joined us tonight by television, we'd like to send you some literature. We'd like to send you a book that has been a blessing to tens of thousands of people around the world, written by Pastor Lutza. Just write to me, Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's all the address you need, just Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now until the same time next week, goodbye, and may the Lord bless you real good. I'm going to speak today on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This happens to be the 500th year. I'm going to be speaking on the Protestant Reformation 500th anniversary. If you're here today as a Catholic, I want to say that we welcome you. I have many Catholic friends in Chicago. As a matter of fact, I'm a graduate of Loyola University, and uh, you are welcome, but I also hope that you brought your sense of humor. Because there is a story that when Pope Paul died a number of years ago, he was trying to get into heaven, and the door to heaven, the key, wouldn't fit. He saw a shadowy figure walk by, and he said, I'm the Pope, I have the keys for the kingdom, and I'm trying to get into heaven, and the key doesn't fit. And the person said, you have to understand, 500 years ago, a guy by the name of Martin Luther came up here and changed the locks. (laughs) More books have been written about Luther than any man who ever lived except Jesus and Paul. And yet there are Christians who have never read anything substantial about him. And by the way, I don't want to miss you folks over here, so I'm going to be looking at you too. You have a great crowd here, and I'm going to look at everybody. There was nothing in Luther's great uh, background to suggest greatness. He was born in 1483, I think it was, and uh, he was studying law at the University of Erfurt, And then he was walking home one day, just as you college students walk home, and suddenly he was struck down by lightning uh, close to Stotternheim, Germany, and cried out and said, Help me, Saint Anne, and I shall become a monk. In order to fulfill his vow, but more importantly, to bring peace to his soul, he switched from the university to the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt, Germany. But he did that also to try to save his soul. Luther was affected with what is known in German as Anfechtungen. That is to say, an existential despair of soul. We could translate it guilt, alienation, depression. The question was, how can he find peace for his soul in the presence of a holy God? Now, the church taught that salvation was through grace, but you had to make yourself worthy of that grace, and you had to contribute to your salvation. So Luther set out to do all that was possibly necessary in his mind to contribute to salvation and somehow to save his soul. He took advantages, for example, of the disciplines of the church. He sometimes... um, fasted so long that people thought he would die. I have led tours to the sites of the Reformation. Your pastor and his wife ought to come along sometime. And uh, what you find is in the monastery there, hard stone floors. Uh, 
Luther slept without blankets to mortify the flesh. The question is, what would he have to do in order to please God enough to make himself worthy of salvation? Now, confession was of some solace to him. But sometimes he confessed his sins six hours at a time. Because, you see, he would begin, by the way, of, you know, quoting the Ten Commandments and the seven deadly sins to jog his memory, and then the confession would begin. He confessed his sins so long that his uh, confessor Staupitz became exasperated and said, Luther, the next time you confess your sin, let it not be for uh, these little peccadillos, these little sins, let it be for murder and adultery, but not all these little sins. But Luther was a better theologian than his contemporaries. He knew that the issue was not whether the sin was big or little, but whether or not it had been confessed. Luther understood that the smallest smidgen of sin would keep you and bar you from God forever. So what was he to do? You'll understand, of course, that he reached an impasse. Sins, in order to be uh, forgiven, had to be confessed. In order for them to be confessed, they had to be remembered. If they were not remembered, they would not be confessed. And if they were not confessed, they would not be forgiven. And Luther discovered something else. It was really even worse than he thought. Even if he remembered all of his sins, even if he took care of all of his sins, tomorrow was another day with brand new sins. It was something like trying to mop up the floor with a faucet running. It was endless. You know, if you know anything about theology and and the Catholic theology, even the Mass only takes care of past sins. Tomorrow's another day with, with new sins and then you have to wait until the next week, but you're always unsure where you stand. Well, what happened after that is that there was something within medieval theology that said, we do have some hope for you, and that is the merit of the saints. The idea was this, that many of the saints, particularly the Virgin Mary, did more than she'd have needed to do to get to heaven. So she had a surplus of merit. And if you viewed a relic, if you paid a gift, you would receive some of their merit, which would be credited to your account. But again, you never really knew how much. Luther also went to Rome. You know, if you know the distance between Erfurt, Germany, and Rome, it's about, I think, about 800 miles. I've traveled it by bus. And it took three months I mean, the journey there, the journey back, he thought, surely in Rome I will find peace. But he went up the famous stairs that I've gone up only because I wanted to do what Luther did there. And he got to the top of those stairs and says, is it so? I've said prayers on each one. And today, by the way, if you go to Rome and you're up those stairs and you see all of the tourists going up, you'll notice that there is still a plaque there that says that if you say prayers on each one of these 28 steps, you get so much time off on purgatory. But the thing is, Luther got up there and wondered, is it so? There are other reasons why he didn't find salvation in Rome that we shall skip, but that was his dilemma. When he got back to Erfurt, 
Uh, what happened is Staupitz, his confessor, said, Luther, you ought to teach the Bible. You know, there was a little university beginning in Wittenberg, Germany, by the Elector Frederick, and he was looking for some young professors. Luther went there initially to teach Aristotelian ethics. But Staupitz said, you should teach the Bible. Luther said, that will be the death of me. And in a sense, it was. Luther began to lecture on the Psalms, and he gets to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Luther said, those are the words of Jesus on the cross. Why did Jesus himself experience what I'm experiencing? A sense of being abandoned by God, overcome with alienation from God, and a lack of peace began to dawn on him that that was for him that Jesus endured that. And then he began to lecture on Romans. And every Christian should know this story. He begins and he's lecturing on Romans and he gets to verse 16. For the gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Luther said, day and night, I pondered that phrase, the righteousness of God. It was the phrase that gave Luther the biggest problems. Looking back on that day, he said, did I love God? He said, I hated him. I hated him because... His, his righteousness was too holy. How does a sinner attain the righteousness of God? And so he began to struggle. But then Luther discovered this. There is a righteousness that belongs to God as an attribute of God. But there is also a righteousness that God gives as a gift to those who believe. For example... It talks about the fact that Abraham was credited for righteousness because he believed. If you get to Romans chapter 5, and you can look at this later, Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul speaks about the free gift of righteousness. So you receive the righteousness of God by faith. Young people don't ever forget this. When Jesus died on the cross, he got what he didn't deserve, namely, our sin. And we get what we don't deserve, namely, his righteousness. His righteousness. Luther said, when I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith, I grasp that the justice or the holiness of God is that righteousness by which God in sheer mercy saves us because it is credited to us as righteousness. Well, think of the deliverance that came to Luther. Because now, remember it, young people, it didn't matter how high God's standard was as long as he didn't have to meet it, as long as Jesus met it for him. You know, Jesus paid it all. Years earlier, centuries later, earlier, 
A man by the name of Augustine said this, Oh God, demand whatever you will, but you supply what you demand. You supply what you demand. So it doesn't matter how high your God's standard is, as long as Jesus meets it for me. I want you to think about this righteousness. Here's a couple characteristics of that righteousness. First of all, it is a free gift. It has to be because it's the kind of righteousness of which you and I have none. We can't contribute to it to make it better. We can't diminish it. It is the righteousness of God. Maybe this is a good time for me to look into your eyes and tell you that you have to be perfect to get to heaven. You have to be perfect. This would be a good time for you wives to look at your husband and say, you are in trouble. <laughs> You're in trouble. But obviously you have to be as perfect as God. But you don't have that perfection. But Jesus supplies what you demand, what God demands. Luther discovered it's a permanent righteousness. It's a permanent righteousness. You see, what Luther needed was one act of God by which he was finally saved. He was not saved confessing his sins in the monastery day after day. There are millions of people who will go to church today and confess their sins and leave without any assurance of salvation because tomorrow's another day with brand new sins. What they need to do is to receive the righteousness of God by faith that is also called, often, being born again. They have to receive the righteousness of God by faith. And uh, that's the way in which then they have assurance. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, God has perfected forever those who are sanctified. You know, one of the doctrines Luther gave up early was purgatory. Purgatory was based on the notion that nobody really dies righteous enough to go to heaven. Well, maybe a few saints, but not people like you and me or your pastor. We wouldn't die righteous enough to go into heaven. Uh, and so you had to go to purgatory to be purged. And then you could enter. Now Luther said this. If I have the righteousness of God attributed to me and credited to my account, I can go from this life to the next as we sing, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Is it legal in this church, Pastor Doug, to say amen? Amen. 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 I just want to make sure because sometimes I feel pretty alone up here unless I have some of the ameners. So it was a permanent righteousness, exciting. It is an equal righteousness. Billy Graham is given that righteousness. Your pastor is given that righteousness. Uh, the Apostle Paul was given it to it. And you, as a believer, are given to it. And you know what that means? That means that you are a priest before God, the priesthood of the believer, because we all have access. Amen. You see, in those days, if you wanted a prayer to God, you'd go to a priest and you'd say, pray for me, because somehow you thought that the priest had more pull with God than you. No, if you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you may be totally unknown, but you come to God and you are welcomed by God through Jesus as if you are the most righteous person in the world. And, and, so, and so now, oh, I'm going to 
mention that again in just a moment. So it is indeed, it is a permanent righteousness. Can you imagine the freedom that came to Luther when he said, my sins don't belong to me, they belong to Jesus. What is the gospel in a sentence, according to Luther? Jesus, I am thy sin, and thou art my righteousness. That's the gospel. Meanwhile, in Rome, when all this was going on, there was a pope by the name of Pope Leo. Pope Leo wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica. Actually, the tiers of the basilica had already been built by a previous pope by the name of Julius, but it was unfinished, and he wanted to finish it. So he needed money. So through a complicated relationship with the German bank that I won't go into, what he decided to do is to begin to sell indulgences. Now, indulgences had a long history. An indulgence basically was the temporal, uh, let me say this, the taking away of the temporal consequences of your sin. There had to be some payment made after you sin. And then that was the indulgence. And, um, but there was a new twist to the indulgences. Before, you'd get an indulgence for yourself. You'd maybe pay a gift. You would uh, say some Hail Marys, whatever it is that the priest prescribed. But now it was new. You could buy an indulgence not just for yourself, but for the dead in purgatory. You could buy them out of purgatory if you bought an indulgence. So there were vendors like Tetzel going throughout Germany, taking the cross that he brought into the town square, setting it there, and saying, this cross has the same value as the cross of Christ. Now, what you can do is you can buy your mother out of purgatory. She is there saying, I'm in these flames, but for a few pence you can buy me out of purgatory. And Tetzel had a little jingle, which translated from the German is essentially this. It is, uh, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Now, the people in Wittenberg, uh, they were not sold in Wittenberg because the Elector Frederick had his own indulgence trade, and he didn't want to... He didn't want to compromise that. But they went across the river, and they went to other towns, and they brought these indulgence letters back, and they showed Luther. Some of them bought indulgences for sins they had not yet committed, but planned to commit. And Luther became angry. And he decided to walk the half mile. By the way, some of you here, may still be able to go with us in June. We're going to, I'm going to be part of a trans-world radio tour, and we're going to visit Vienna and, um, and uh, Prague, briefly Berlin, and then some of the Luther sites. And uh, what you do is go to living passages. Will you remember that? Not dead passages. <laughs> living passages. That's the tour agency. But anyway... Uh, Luther walked the half mile from his home in Wittenberg, and it is almost a half mile, to the castle church, and there he nailed 95 theses to the castle church door on October 31st, 1517, and that's usually the time when we think about the Protestant Reformation beginning. Now, it actually had begun previously by a guy by the name of John Hus. Oh, 
such an exciting story. Uh, but I have to hurry on with Luther. <laughs> I'll, I'll maybe tell you Hus at the end. Just hang on. So anyway, 95 theses written in Latin, intending to debate. He had no idea of beginning a reformation or breaking from the church. But these 95 theses, which were critical of indulgences and some other uh, scandals, were translated into German. Gutenberg had already made his printing press the previous century. And so now they are spread throughout all of Germany, and all the Germans are reading it, and they are saying, Jawohl, it's about time. It was said later that uh, 90% of the Germans were on Luther's side and the other 10% were shouting death to the Pope. If you do the math, you know. You know, did you know that actually seven out of six people have trouble with math? <laughs> so we have to go slowly here. So anyway, uh, Luther nails these 95 theses. Now suddenly he's famous. He enters into debates, and remember this, the issue always was this, what is our source of authority? For example, when Cajetan was sent there by the Pope to Augsburg, they had a debate. And uh, the issue was the merit of the saints, and Luther would say, where's the merit of the saints? Where does it say we should pray to Mary? Cajetan says it doesn't have to be in the Bible. The Pope said it, tradition said it, and on and on the debates went. Eventually, Luther was excommunicated by the Pope, and if you come with me to Wittenberg, I'll show you at exactly where it happened, at the Ulster Gate. And they burned the papal bull, which has nothing to do with farming or anything like that. The papal bull was burned, uh, his, his uh, bull of excommunication. Mind you now, a new emperor arrives in Europe. His name is Charles V. Charles V is from Spain. He's an ardent Catholic. He wants to kill Luther. But he knows that if he does this, he's going to have the anger of the Germans. So he said, I want to kill him, but first I want to have a hearing. So he goes to Worms. Uh, that is the city. Billy Graham would say, Sutter. But he goes to Worms, and you know, in German, W is like a V. So people, English people read, you know, the diet of worms. And they try it, and it really does work, I might say. If, you're, if you ever want to lose weight, the diet of worms will do it. In Chicago, by the way, we used to have what, is known, what was known as the cub diet. Before this year, we had the cub diet. People lost all kinds of weight. They only ate when the cubs won. Now, this last year, if you did that, you'd probably gain some weight. But back to the story. The diet of Worms. So finally, they agree on a date when Charles V, the head of the Holy Roman Empire, is going to meet with Luther and all the German princes. Luther, of course, was very sarcastic. He'd have been a delight to have dinner with. Did you know that his students wrote down table talks? Because every night they had students in their home. And these table talks uh, occupy six small volumes. Now, everything that Luther wrote, huge volumes. But could you imagine somebody taking notes from your table talks, whatever you say at the table, and people still pour over it 500 years later? 
I don't think so. But Luther said sarcastic things like this. If I go to recant, I can recant here. This shall be my recantation at Worms. Previously, I said the Pope was the vicar of Christ. I now recant. I now say that the Pope is the adversary of Christ and the apostle of the devil. So that's going to be my recantation at Worms. Now, young people, thank you for being here, and old people. We always say to ourselves, how can we help the young people to stand against the culture? One of the ways is to look at heroes and examples of courage. I want you to get this now. Luther is going to his death, so far as he knows. He doesn't die. You know why? Because the Turks, the Muslim Turks were circulating were circling Vienna, and Charles would need the Lutherans to help him in the war against the Turks. Because Charles wanted to put him to death right there. So Luther is going to what he believes will be his death. So his books are brought to him, a guy by the name of Eck. Will you recant? Luther said, I, I want to debate, because some of these things in the books are, are things that the church agrees with. No, you have to just recant them. Luther said, give me a night to think about it. They said, okay, come back tomorrow. I want you to read. I want to read for you part of the prayer that Luther prayed that night. Every time I read this, tears come to my eyes. I mean, Luther was not, Luther was a human being. He feared death, just like you and I do. Oh, almighty and everlasting God, how terrible is this world. Behold, it opens its mouth to swallow me up, and I have so little trust in thee. Oh, God, how weak is the flesh, and Satan is so strong. My last hour is come, my condemnation has been pronounced. Oh, God, oh, God, help me against the wisdom of this world. And he goes on to say, I'm not reading it all, I'm just selecting certain lines. He said, um, uh, and it is a righteous and eternal cause that I'm involved in. All that is of man is uncertain. Oh, my God, don't you hear me? Are you dead? No, you can't die, but you are hiding yourself, and yet you've chosen me for this work. Act then. Stand by my side for the sake of the well-beloved Jesus Christ, who is my defense, my shield. Luther goes on to say, Oh God, when I'm stretched out on the pavement, when they're killing me, are you going to be there for me? And then he says this, and if you've been saved for two years, you should memorize these words and you should pass them on to your children and have them memorize because I don't even know what church history would have looked like if Luther had recanted. But he said these words, I cannot... And I will not recant. My conscience is taken captive by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here stehe ich, ich kann nicht anderes. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. The room erupted. 
Here's Charles, the head of the Holy Roman Empire. Here's all the German princes. Here's the Catholic delegates. And Charles says, okay, let him sleep. Let him go back to his quarters. And he writes what is known as the Edict of Worms that says anyone who finds Luther after he returns to Wittenberg can kill him without reprisal. See, Charles had given Luther a safe conduct there and back, and he wanted to keep his promise. Later on, he regretted it. He regretted that he just didn't kill him right there. Later on, a delegation comes to Luther and says that evening, you have to recant. Don't you see that the church is being split? Luther said, if I had a thousand heads, I would give them for what I believe. Wow. All right, folks. Luther's on his way home. He's riding in a wagon. And uh, what happens is some men jump out of the ditch. They capture him, and they take him to the Wartburg Castle, and they hide him. They were actually the security detail of the Elector Frederick, Luther's prince, who sided with Luther. They hid him in the Wartburg Castle in a room that you can go into today where Luther spent 11 months. And uh, it used to be that uh, tradition says he threw an inkwell at the devil there. Well, you know, tour guys used to rub a little bit of soot on the wall because you pay so much to go to Germany. You have so many stairs that you have to climb. You want to see where the inkwell landed. I'm not sure that Luther threw an inkwell at the devil. Do you know what happened in that room? He translated the entire New Testament, not the old, but the entire New Testament from the original Greek into vernacular German that the Germans could read and understand. And I think, Doug, that when he said, I fought the devil with ink, that's what he said in his table talks, I think that's what he meant. I fought the devil with ink. If you want to fight the devil, don't throw an inkwell at him. You know, he's not going to say, oh boy, that one almost hit me. If you're going to fight the devil, give people the word of God. Amen. And in that room, he wrote one book after another. Too interesting to go into. Now what I'd like to do is to really hop fast here because this is a flyover. Let's talk about how the Reformation spread. And by the way, he married Katie. What an interesting marriage that was. They had six children. Luther said that uh, marriage was a joy of which the Pope was not worthy. And uh, <laughs> too much interesting things that we have to skip. Let's skip to Switzerland. There's a young reformer there by the name of John Calvin. Calvin is studying in Paris. He's French. And he comes across Luther's writings. Now, he doesn't tell us explicitly. He just talks about Luther, and then he talks about his conversion. Possibly it happened because he was reading Luther's documents. And Luther, excuse me, Calvin becomes a famous theologian. He writes a book entitled The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which became the Reformed Doctrine and the textbook in Europe for 200 years. How do you think that we have the Dutch Reformed? You know, Holland, a Reformed country, Calvinistic. Where did that come from? It came from John Calvin, probably more than anything through the Institutes of the Christian Religion and, of course, others who spread it. Now, Calvin is there in Geneva, and Bloody Mary is ruling in England, 
Refugees go from England to Calvin's Geneva, and among them are some scholars, and they say to themselves, you know what we need? We need a better translation of the Bible into English. Calvin can't help them because, after all, he's French, but they translate the Bible into English, and it becomes the Geneva Bible. And when our pilgrims came to the great United States here of America, what did they bring with them but the Geneva Bible? All the implications here. But let me tell you another story. In another city of Switzerland, you have a man by the name of Swingley. Swingley comes to saving faith. He preaches the gospel. He brings about a reformation in the great Grossmünster. You know, German is the only language in which you can say, I love you, and it sounds like a threat. <laughs> you know, ich liebe dich. Really? Do you want to settle that out in the hall? <laughs> so Swingley is there, and he is teaching the gospel. He has some men that he's mentoring. He's teaching them Greek and Hebrew. They come to the conclusion, infant baptism isn't in the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to baptize ourselves upon profession of faith. But the Zurich City Council said that anyone who is baptized upon profession of faith as an adult must be put to death by burning, by sword, or drowning. Why do you think they said that? I'll tell you why. Hey, it's just a little bit after 10, isn't it, Pastor? I still have a little bit of time here. Sure. Trust me. Trust you. God bless you. Have you ever gone this long? <laughs> all right, all right. Now listen. Infant baptism was a symbol of the unity of church and state Christendom. It was like um, citizenship in the Holy Roman Empire, which Voltaire said was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Okay? So what happened is infant baptism becomes this symbol. In the year 800, Charlemagne issued a decree, anyone who has his children baptized must be put to death. The parents have to be killed, and many of them were. Because they refused, excuse me, they refused to have their children baptized because it became the symbol. So the Zurich City Council said you have to be put to death by burning, by a sword, or drowning. If you ever come with me to Zurich, Switzerland, I will take you to the exact place where drownings took place. Felix Mans was the first one who was drowned. His little boat was taken, capsized. He goes under the deep, dark waters of the Lamont River with the voice of his mother shouting above the waves, urging her son to remain true to the faith. And then what happened is others were drowned as well. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something that you've never heard before. I don't want anybody leaving here saying, hey, you know, we heard Lutzer, and he didn't tell us anything we didn't know before. Anabaptism, it was called anabaptism, rebaptizers. Anabaptism spread throughout Switzerland and Germany. Whole villages became Anabaptist. And do you know, with the support of the reformers, 
Timothy George, who studied in Europe for a year and wrote a book on the, on the theology of the Reformers, told me, more Christians were massacred as Anabaptists after the Reformation than died in the early centuries of Rome. Whole women, men, women, children, villages wiped out. Why? Because they refused to baptize their infants and they baptized one another on profession of faith. And you know what I've read? That when Felix Mons, when Swingley's friend was drowned, Swingley was on the shore and sarcastically said, well, if he wishes to go under the water, then let him go under. You know, you want to be baptized? We'll baptize you good and proper. In fact, it was known as the third baptism because all these people were baptized as infants and then they were baptized as adults. They baptized one another and the third baptism is we'll drown them. Out of those came the brethren movement and eventually, you know, the Mennonites and so forth. But this is what I want to read about those Anabaptists. If you go into a Brethren church or even a Mennonite church, you'll often see lists of people who died. Why? Because they believed strongly that the church had to be separate from the government and they would not be co-opted by pressure. After recording the deaths of 2,173 of the Brethren, the chronicler wrote these words. I mean, many of them, they were asked to dig their own graves and horrible. No human being was able to take out of their hearts what they had experienced. The fire of God burned within them. They would die ten deaths rather than forsake divine truth. They had drunk of the water which is flowing from God's sanctuary, the water. Their tent they had pitched, not here on earth, but in eternity. Their faith blossomed like a lily. Their loyalty as a rose their piety and their candor is the flower of the garden of God. And they, uh, it goes on to say, they were thus drawn unto God that they knew nothing, sought nothing, desired nothing, loved nothing but God alone. Therefore they had more patience in their suffering than their enemies in tormenting them. And they died for the faith. What I'd like to do is to give you six quick lessons that the Reformation teaches us very quickly. Six main lessons. Why did I tell you about the Reformation today? Apart from the fact that we do stand on the shoulders of others. Number one, the power of God's word. The power of God's word. When Luther translated the German Bible, the Bible, the New Testament, and then later on the Old Testament with help, it changed the German nation. It unified Germany. The power, if he did nothing else but that, the power of God's word. Luther, in fact, you know, he was always given to exaggeration and sometimes foolish comments. He said, I did nothing. He said, I just sat here in um, Wittenberg with Amsdorf and we let the word of God do the work. Well, he did a lot of work too. But it's the power of the word. I was born in a German home. My parents spoke German and they were from, uh, from uh, the Ukraine, but they were German. By the way, my father lived to 106 and my mother to 103. My parents lived so long that I'm sure until my father died, all of their friends in heaven thought that they just didn't make it. You know, they said, <laughs> where are the Lutzers? But the Lutzers made it. 
I believe that my ministry today is the result of the prayers of my parents. But they read the Bible to us, German Bible, every day. One time as a kid, I opened the flyleaf, and there it says Luther translation. The impact, huge. The power of the word. Secondly, the priesthood of the believer. I already told you how the priesthood of the believer changed worship. It changed worship because now everybody could worship. Everybody could come to God. You come to God because you are a priest before God. The priesthood of the believer revolutionized work. You know, it used to be if you want to do a good work for God, you go to the priest and he'd give you an assignment. Now you're doing a holy work. Luther said if you're a priest before God, everything that you do is a sacrifice to God that is well-pleasing if you do it for his glory. Whatever you eat, to drink, whatever, you do it to the glory of God. He said that the person who scrubs floors to the glory of God They are honoring God by their faithfulness more than somebody who's going through rituals. I love the way Luther said it. He said, God milks cows. But he uses a milkmaid to do it. When you wake up tomorrow morning, and I hope you do, there are other options. But when you wake up tomorrow morning and you go to work, you know that boss that doesn't pay you right and so forth, don't work for him. Just say, I'm not working for you. Don't tell him that. But work for God. You serve him, and the New Testament tells you you'll be rewarded. Number four, when Luther said, my conscience is taken captive by the word of God, he was planting the seeds of freedom of religion. The idea that a single monk could stand there and say, my conscience is above the Pope, was unthinkable. By the way, speaking of the power of the word, we need... Christian parents today and young people who say with Luther, my, my uh, conscience is held captive by the word of God. So the seeds of freedom of religion, very interesting. Number five, the need for courage. Uh, do I still have a few minutes, Pastor? All right. I have to tell you this story because I kind of promised it. A hundred years before Hitler I wrote a book on Hitler too, but I'm speaking about Luther this morning. That's a different story. A hundred years before Luther, there was a man in Prague by the name of John Hus. In the Czech language, Hus and Goose are the same word. He was taken to Constance, and uh, he was tried for heresy. He was given safe conduct, but the Emperor Sigismund said, I don't have to keep my word to a heretic. So Hus was burned at the stake. But before he was burned, he said these words. He said, you can cook this hus. You can cook this goose. But after me, in a hundred years, a swan will arise, and him you will not be able to silence. 102 years later, Luther nails his 95 theses to the castle church door, and he explicitly believed he was the fulfillment of Hus's prophecy. And today we still say, They cooked his goose, the need for courage. You know, we have Christians today who who hide their faith. They don't want to witness to anybody because they say, if I witness, he's going to think that I'm a Bible thumper. Well, let him think you're a Bible thumper, but let him think that you're a wonderful, loving Bible thumper. You know, well, I don't want to say anything about Jesus. They're going to think I voted for Trump. Well, (laughs) represent Jesus wherever you are. The need for courage, the clarification of the gospel. 
At the end of the day, the question is, how are we saved? Because there are some of you here who have never savingly believed on Jesus. I have no doubt about that in this large crowd. You've never savingly believed. You do not really have assurance, though you may think that you are a Christian, but you have never rejected all works, all of your contributions, which are as filthy rags, and you have never savingly believed on Jesus. I urge you today to believe on him and be saved. And it is really all because Jesus paid it all. The work is done. You must receive that by faith. I usually fly with a ticket. Sometimes I've flown standby. When you're flying standby, you know, you, uh, you, you look at the, uh, you, you bother the woman behind the counter. She tells you to sit down, but I'm German, so I'm up again in three minutes. I told you to sit down. I'll call your name. Okay. That's standby because you're uncertain. But when you have a ticket, you know, 6F or whatever it is that I had the other day, I have a place reserved. And in heaven there's a crown only you can wear. There's a room that only you can enter. But the way you get into it is by saving faith in Jesus Christ. And if you believe that Jesus did all that ever will be necessary for you to stand before God and you embrace that, you'll be saved and you will know it. Because assurance comes not because of your performance, which is really bad, but Jesus supplies everything that you need. Would you believe on him even now where you are seated? Father, I ask in Jesus' name that Luther's story may become the story of many others who are here today who have no assurance of faith because they've never savingly believed on Jesus alone. Birth that faith in their hearts, we pray, and cause them to believe even now to cry up to you and receive the salvation and the righteousness that you give to sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.